Coming to you from Beaumont, this is your house call. I'm watching a video right now of Tessa. Tessa is a high school student in cheerleading, and she's doing some moves right now in practice. Let me describe what I'm seeing. So she's a flyer, so she stands on top of a base of three other cheerleaders, and they hoist her up into the air. And right now, uh, they're setting her up, um, and she's her head is easily 12 feet in the air, and they're going to now drop her down, and there she goes. Oh! and she cracks her head pretty good on the matted floor. Um, Pretty tough video to watch. And for anyone out there who might not have known this already, yes, cheerleading is uh, potentially a contact sport, uh, and Tessa could certainly attest to that. My name is Tessa. I'm 17, and I'm a junior. Uh, I'm a pretty good student, and I've been cheering for about seven years. One day at practice, something happened where my base didn't catch me and I fell on my head and I don't remember it happening. I still don't remember what happened. My first memory, I remember hearing things. I remember my eyes were closed and then I remember my, my coach just, I heard noises but I couldn't really like, like figure out what they were saying. And then I um, remember my trainer Ashley coming in and making sure my neck was fine and sitting me up. And then I remember my coach saying that she called my mom. Tess is okay, and the person who's joining us on the podcast today is one of the healthcare providers that treated Tessa. Hello and welcome to the Beaumont House Call podcast. I'm Dr. Nick Gilpin, and my goal is to help you and your family live a smarter, healthier life. In case you didn't already guess, today's podcast is all about concussions, and our guest today in the studio is Susan Musto. Susan is a nurse practitioner that works in the Beaumont Concussion Clinic. Um, Ms. Musto has worked for many years treating people with head injuries and worked as a nurse practitioner in physical medicine and rehabilitation before joining Beaumont. She's also going to be going back to Wayne State University to get her PhD, and she's going to be doing concussion research at Wayne State. In today's conversation, we're going to hit on several topics. We're going to talk about the physiology and pathophysiology of concussions. In other words, what's going on inside the head when a hit is taken. Then Susan and I will get into the clinical aspects of a concussion, including how to recognize and evaluate someone uh, with a suspected concussion. Uh, We'll touch on uh, the epidemiology of concussions, a very frequent uh, event in today's sporting world, including some of the challenges with concussion management that are largely due to underreporting. And no talk would be complete about concussions without discussion regarding management, including prognosis, long-term, and potential cumulative effects of concussions. So with that, I welcome Susan Musto to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Glad you could come in. So Susan, we hadn't met before this. Um, I appreciate you coming in. Um, you have a very interesting clinical path that you've blazed here. You're, you work in a concussion clinic, and this is your, your interest. So how did you arrive here? When I first started in nursing, I worked at the Rehab Institute of Chicago on their brain injury unit, and I was fascinated back then about brain injury. People would have the same injury but present in different ways. Mm -hmm. So I always liked that. You know, it was different every day when I would come in. Um, Behaviors would change. Uh, It was very interesting to me. Then 
when I became a nurse practitioner, I worked in inpatient rehab, and I would see people in nursing homes. And I just saw a lot of patients with stroke. So neuro has always been an interest for me. Mm-hmm. But also, I have teenagers that play sports. And that really kind of with concussion started to pick my interest about concussion. So I Beaumont, when I came to Beaumont, you know, they, their concussion clinic was just getting up and running. So that's what brought me to Beaumont was my interest in concussion and the opening there. Then when I started seeing patients in concussion clinic, I started to think about concussion, um, even more like why does it take some people longer to recover than others why is it this sport that has more injuries than others so that's what brought me to Wayne State to work on my PhD and do research in concussion very interesting and I think concussion is definitely a a growing body of of medicine that we're beginning to understand much more it's getting a lot more attention nowadays I think most listeners know the basics of what a concussion is or at least they they have a foundational understanding of that could you explain a little bit about the physiology of a concussion what happens inside our head when we get hit hard so our brain is floating in a little bit of cerebrospinal fluid so the way that we describe it a lot to our adolescent patients and younger patients is that it's kind of your brain is floating like pickles in a jar so when it gets <laughs> hit really hard it moves a little bit inside the skull so that's what happens physically in concussion. Uh, what you can't see on a microscopic level is the the brain gets twisted and shaken, and all of the nerve cells that we have in our brain are called neurons, and the, li- the endings of them look like tails, and they're called axons. Those axons get stretched and twisted, and they can break off. Mm-hmm. So... Even though we can't see that on imaging, we know that happens, and it interferes with the release of the chemicals in the brain and uh, causes the symptoms of concussion. Sure. Let's move over to you know clinical. So now you just talked about what's going on inside the brain, the cells, uh, the the axon damage, etc. How would one recognize a concussion clinically? And you know you. You took care of Tessa, um, who we you know, referenced in the opening. You know, talk a little bit about how uh, you know Tessa was sort of approached when this first happened, and, and how they were able to recognize concussion in her. I want to first start by saying that there's a myth that you have to have a loss of consciousness to have a concussion, and that is really a misnomer. It loss of consciousness occurs in only 10% of all concussions. Most often people get injured and they, you know, will hit their head, but some people don't have symptoms right away. Some people will immediately have a headache. Some people have nausea. I'll go into the symptoms a little bit later, but, you know, it varies from person to person, but it is definitely... um, not always apparent. Sure. And that wide variability in presentation can make it difficult to recognize in the moment. So there's a real challenge there with, with recognizing. And probably, I would assume, also part of what leads to underreporting. Right. Exactly. Because out on a field, at least with our student athletes, if it's a big game, they don't want to come off the field. And so they may hesitate to let a athletic trainer or coach know that they are injured. So that is a challenge. Um, Sure. But 
sometimes it is obvious. Sometimes they'll get up from a hit, and I will hear from the parent who was watching on the sideline that they were walking funny or... Um, another teammate said they had a dazed look or they didn't answer the question accurately. People can have very different symptoms. You know, people can have just a headache and nothing else. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's part of the reason I like what I do because it is so varied and individual. Are there certain symptoms that we would consider red flags? Like these are, like, yes. like this is something serious, this person needs to go to the emergency room, or this is maybe something we can just watch and and sort of see how this plays out. So yes, anybody who has a loss of consciousness should go to the emergency room for further evaluation. Uh, Other red flags would be uh, someone who has inability to stay awake or has extreme lethargy, uh, someone who's confused, Mm -hmm or worsening mentation where they they're seem fine at first and then they get start to not make sense as they're talking or they can't answer how old they are or who the person is that is a family member maybe that's standing right next to them. I've seen that before as well. So those times you would have to go to the, to the emergency room, a neck injury, a seizure. Um, one pupil might be larger than the other. Sure. Um, at that point, those people need to be evaluated with CAT scans and brain imaging. Correct. Correct. Can you talk a little bit about a timeline? I know we we already sort of said that there's a lot of variability, so this is not really a fair question, but if we were to open up the textbook and read about concussions, you know, um, is there a a timeline of symptoms, short-term versus longer-term, for, say, the average concussion patient? It can vary. Typically, people will have symptoms right away. Okay. Headache is the number one symptom that we see. 90% of all concussions, people will present with a headache. Uh, But it doesn't have to occur right away. I hear all the time people say they felt fine initially, and then they go to bed, and they wake up in the morning, and then they have all these symptoms. They're light sensitive. They have nausea. They have dizziness. They have a headache. Uh, So, And then even up to a few days after the concussion, I had one patient that kind of varied. He felt fine one day, and then the next day he had headache and nausea, then he felt fine that night, Hmm. and then it was maybe the second day he woke up and he had the full-blown symptoms of concussion. So it can take up to a few days to present itself. And then people who don't have severe symptoms might only present in situations that stress them, like in a classroom, you know, when they're having being forced to concentrate and take notes and listen to what the teacher is saying, and the lights are bright, or the computer screens are bright, then those symptoms tend to come out more than maybe if they're at home resting. You know, the latest professional society guidelines, like the American Academy of of, uh, Neurosurgeons and some of the um, professional and and, uh, amateur sports associations like the NCAA and the NFL, have recommendations for how concussion sufferers should be evaluated and and how they should be triaged. Um, The recommendation in, in my reading is that at a minimum, anyone who suffers a concussion should be evaluated and cleared by a physician and or healthcare professional. Practically speaking, how does this work in real life? I mean, so um, should someone be scheduling a, a, a well, they're going to most likely be triaged on the scene by a, a, an athletic trainer or other professional. 
now what? So should I be seeing my primary care physician? Should I be going to the emergency center? Should I be going to the concussion clinic? How do patients get triaged out from there? So in sports, uh, usually in high school, there's an athletic trainer. But we see a lot of adolescents that are 12, 13 that play club sports that don't have an athletic trainer available. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times that is reliant on the coach to evaluate them. Or typically what I see is a parent will just take the child to the emergency room regardless of the symptoms that they're having because they're worried parents and who wouldn't. Uh, So I see that. People that get in car accidents, usually EMT comes and will take them to an emergency room. We have a lot of slip and falls, though, that happen in the wintertime. And those people tend to, unless they have severe symptoms, tend to call their regular doctor and make an appointment to come in. Uh, The athletic trainers in our area... uh, There's about 32 to 33 high schools that have BOMA-employed athletic trainers, so uh, they are really good about, you know, telling them and triaging whether they need to go to the emergency room or the concussion clinic. What we do in our clinic is um, it's all based on self-referral, so you don't need a physician order or to come see us. Okay. So... um, our, you know, our athletic trainers, as I said, or our emergency rooms, what they do is they might see the patient first in the emergency room and rule out anything, you know, serious like a skull fracture or a brain bleed. Um, and then they come to us and we do a lot of the education and um, follow up in terms of how they recover. Talk for a second about some of the on the scene um, assessments that can be done, like for example, using scoring systems. I know of one that's called SCAT Five. Um, talk a little bit about that and how what what the utility of something like that might be in this situation. So the SCAT Five is something that I know all of the athletic trainers use as a sideline assessment. It can also be done in a clinician office, but typically I see it more on the sidelines in this area, and. It measures different things. There, it measures balance. Uh, there's a test that's called the BESS that measures balance. There's a graded symptom scale, so a person can rate on a scale of one to or zero to six how severe they're suffering their symptoms. Um, so these are sort of ways to more objectively quantify the severity of a of a of a potential injury or a concussion, and, and, and be utilized to help triage the person in the right direction. Yes. High score, bad, go to the emergency room. Low score, observe, follow up with primary care doctor or concussion clinic, and so on. Is that about right? Yes, and I know in our emergency room at Royal Oak, they use a, a system like that uh, called PCARN, and I don't know all the specifics about it because I don't work in the ER, but mm-hmm. I know that they decide whether someone – Um, should be observed or should be scanned or should be held for observation. So they have a system that they use there as well that's different than the sideline assessment. The CDC says, and you can get this right on their website, that there are about 2.5 million concussions occurring annually in the United States. And the thought is that this number is probably actually quite a bit higher than that because we're doing a pretty lousy job of reporting these. And part of that is... um, pressure uh, from the athletes themselves. They don't want to be taken out of the game. They want to keep playing. So I can certainly understand that. And part of it also is something you alluded to earlier, that the symptoms don't always appear right then and there. The person may feel perfectly fine, 
you know, put me back in, coach, I'll be okay. Um, talk a little bit about this problem of underreporting, um, and what should we be doing to try to improve concussion awareness? So I think that you're right. I think part of it has to do with not wanting to admit that they have a concussion, mm-hmm. some of the athletes. But sometimes I'm also seeing people that have had repeated concussions don't always go and seek treatment because they've had one in the past, so therefore they do the same thing that they did the first time around. So, <laughs> you know, I suspect that that's true. There probably are more because people who have had one are educated about what to do. Uh, what we can do to educate more people is to just try and increase the awareness by, you know, at least in the state of Michigan, anybody who's involved with any kind of youth sports, whether it be a coach, a parent, a volunteer, they all have to have concussion education before they're allowed to work with those teams. So I think that's important. Uh and doing this kind of thing, you know, getting the average person who maybe, you know, doesn't play a sport, but knows even it doesn't have to be sport related, it can be slip and falls, it can be, you know, children who fall off of playground equipment, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe younger ones who can't express themselves and tell them what's wrong, at least if we have people who are educated and know what to look for, you know, that hopefully will help. So let's say now, for an, for an example, that you know me or um, or a lacrosse player or Tessa, uh, you know, suffers a concussion and comes into the to the concussion clinic. What is your what are your recommendations for someone who suffered a concussion? What what is your treatment protocol, and what is your general approach to return to work or return to athletics after a concussion? So when they first come into our clinic, we do a complete history and physical to uh, neurologic assessment. Uh, we, we definitely will always, regardless if it's an adult or a, a younger person, um, take two to three days of complete cognitive and physical rest. So staying home from school or work is recommended okay. um, for those first two or three days. What we've heard in the past, you know, is you should stay in a dark room don't yeah. do anything, that kind of thing. But studies don't let them are fall actually, asleep, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. I wake them up every two to three hours. Yeah, right. But that's actually showing to be not effective in recovery hmm. time. It's uh, what we're finding through studies is that getting back to a little bit more of a normal routine after those two to three days and actually participating in low impact kind of exercises. Currently, what we do is we recommend daily walking for our patients. Um, and that's showing to improve recovery times in studies than laying around and doing nothing. So it also helps like a lot of these school age kids, they start to become anxious or depressed if they're out too long. They start to miss their friends. They start to miss their social life, their, their sport. So getting them back into a classroom, Um, What we do, though, um, with work and with school is we do, when we send them back, have some modifications. Like, we don't just send them back and say, good luck, you know. (laughs) We, um, for school, what we do is we get a list for the guidance counselor of accommodations that we want them to follow. So if somebody, let's say, is light sensitive, we ask that they dim the lights or they dim the computer screens. Someone who has sound sensitivity, we might ask that they eat lunch in a 
classroom instead of the cafeteria or let them get out of class before the bell rings one or two minutes early so that they may walk in a quieter hallway. Um, If they're having cognition problems, like problems with concentration or attention, memory, we might ask the the teacher uh, assign a person to take notes for the student so that the student can just listen to what the teacher is saying and be able to get the notes later or tape recording the lectures. So we do all those kinds of things while they're in recovery. Really tailored, you know, very much so to the individual. There's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all. Right. And for adults, when they go back to work, you know, some people can't afford to take time off of work. I've experienced that as well. Of course. You know, that's what we recommend. But if they can't afford to do it, what we ask is, can they give them some extra break time when their symptoms worsen? Let them go to a quiet place to just have a few minutes to decompress and have some downtime or maybe shorten their work day as they recover. So those are the kind of things that we implement before they're even allowed to return to sport. Sounds like good sense. What's mm-hmm. the, what is the um, overall prognosis of someone who suffers a concussion? For the, the length of time of recovery is typically 7 to 21 days. Mm-hmm. In the literature, um, it can go up to a month, you know, before someone is considered to have post-concussion syndrome. That's a whole different animal, but post-concussion syndrome happens in only about 10 to 15% of cases where people have continued symptoms past that normal time frame, and they're not recovering as quickly. In those cases, people will then need to follow up usually with neurology and um, may have to have further um, rehab, you know, different therapies, vestibular therapy or vision therapy for any continued symptoms that they're having. You talked about this a little earlier, but the idea of multiple concussions. Talk a little bit about what the difference is there in terms of, you know, prognosis or is there sort of this cumulative or additive effect of having multiple concussions? Typically, when you have one concussion, uh, people recover and they go back to normal and things are fine. When you have repeated concussions, as long as you're healing in between each one, you know, people tend to think nothing of it. But there are, you know, people that have some lasting symptoms that don't go away. Um, Over time, repeated concussions are showing in studies to um, increase people's risk of Alzheimer's disease, Hmm. Parkinson's disease, um, having difficulty with their memory, organization skills, attention as they age. We should probably at this point talk about CTE, right? Mm -hmm. So what is CTE? So that's chronic traumatic encephalopathy is Mm -hmm. what it stands for. And it is a syndrome that we see very rarely, but it does happen in people who receive multiple head blows over time. Typically, we see this in football players or boxers. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is over time with these repeated head blows, there's a, a protein called tau that gets deposited into the brain. And it can cause mood changes, behavior changes. Um, The brain actually um, becomes atrophied over time. So it presents a lot like an Alzheimer's dementia, Mm. but it 
it's different. The clue obviously would be that this person was participating in contact sports for you know years, a good part of their life. Mm-hmm. And what I'm also understanding about CTE is that it is a on a spectrum of uh, of concussion related uh, consequences. It is on the far far extreme end. It's a fairly rare situation, but it certainly does exist, and it's gotten a lot of attention, I think, in the sporting world, mm-hmm. and it's turning people's attention towards. Um, contact sports in general, which segues into my next question, which is, and it's a little bit of a tough question, maybe a little bit of a controversial question, but should kids be playing contact sports? What is the medical professional's opinion about that? I think that they should. I think that the benefits of playing contact sports or sports in general far outweigh the risks. Uh, what we know is that our world is becoming more sedentary with all of the digital technology out there, video games, being on phones constantly. <laughs> you know, um, kids are more sedentary and becoming obese. And so it is important for them to get out and exercise and play sports. Yeah. I also think that it's good for your self esteem. Um, you learn leadership skills, you learn how to communicate. I mean, these kids hit like buttons and smiling emojis all the time, and they don't come face to face with people. And I think when you're playing a sport, you know, you have verbal communication, nonverbal communication that you see face to face with people. So I think it's important. It helps build friendships as well. I think those are great points, Susan. And I agree. I I think that you, you have to well, first of all, this is a decision that is a very personal one. I think parents are going to make these decisions, um, and hopefully they're making informed decisions. I think, yes, on the one side, you have to look at the potential harms of playing contact sports, injuries, concussions, things like that. Yes, they do happen. But I think you just laid out a whole wealth of, of real benefits to playing sports in general, whether they be contact sports or non-contact sports, um, teamwork, uh, team building, communication, leadership skills, physical fitness. And those are all things that absolutely cannot be understated. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have to just be aware and use your personal protective equipment right. for the sport you're playing. But, you know, we can't live in a bubble. So, you know, and if a child wants to play, you know, I think it's good for them. Okay, this is our house call takeaway from today's podcast. Susan, thank you for being on the podcast today. I want to put a stake in the ground on some issues here and and, and just some final thoughts. So you're a parent that's listening to the podcast or you're a coach that's listening to the podcast. What is the the big take-home message here? If you've got a, a, a kid or if you've got an athlete who you think has suffered a concussion, give me your big takeaways. What do you need to do and, and what do you do going forward? So if you suspect that your child has a concussion, you're watching the game, and they're taken out by an athletic trainer, or they take themselves out of the game, they absolutely should not be going back in that day. Okay. They need to get evaluated by either the trainer at the sideline and or then a medical professional. And um, what are some warning signs that need to be watched for by either coaches or parents, things that really demand a more aggressive evaluation of a, of, a, of a child or an athlete? So the danger signs that we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, loss of consciousness, okay. but even at home, sometimes they come home and they're feeling fine and then they wake up in the middle of the night and they have a really severe headache 
or, you know, they're having nausea, they're throwing up. Um, I've even had someone suffer a seizure in the middle of the night. So those are situations where we, we don't wait. We, those people need to be evaluated either emergency room, urgent care, whatever's closest, you know, get them there for a checkup. Yes. Last question, um, return to work or return to the athletic field. What's the protocol? So once you go back to sport, you have to be completely symptom-free for at least 24 hours. Students need to be back in school full-time and not having any difficulties in class. Uh, Then it's a graduated protocol. So you don't just go right back into the game. You have to go through steps. There's usually five or six steps, and each step takes place over one day. So it takes about five, six days to get back to gameplay. And it starts with just elevating your heart rate to resistance training to non-contact um, drills to contact drills to a full practice. So just to synthesize that information that you just gave to, to what you said earlier in the podcast, a brief period of, of rest, which is usually a day, two days, then a gradual return to activity but when it comes to, or work but when it comes to going back out on the playing field you need to be symptom free correct that's what i heard okay mm-hmm. thank you susan you're welcome I want to thank our guest, Susan Musto, for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Susan, um, first of all, I want to, I want to just mention that um, to the listener, you can get more information at beaumont.org uh, slash concussion. Uh, we have a website set up with some information and some links to um, concussion resources. But Susan, are there any other resources out there that we should be aware of for um, specifically concussion or concussion awareness? Yes. The CDC has a wonderful program called Heads Up, and the, it's a website. It's at cdc.gov backslash heads up. Mm-hmm. And it has educational training videos. It has information that you can print off that's free of copyright um, that can be distributed. Um, they have information from different perspectives for parents, for coaches, for healthcare professionals, and for athletes. They have resources on there. Um, it's a it's a great website to go to. Perfect. I also want to remind you to send along any questions or suggestions to podcast at beaumont.org. Dr. Shah Jahan and I are standing by to answer your burning questions. And with that, we will leave you today with this healthy thought. Concussions are all over the news these days. Usually it's because we're hearing about an athlete missing a big game because of a bad head injury. Awareness of concussions and head injuries is certainly improving, thanks largely to more research showing the long-term effects of repeated head injuries. Remember that head injuries and concussions can potentially be serious conditions. People who suffer concussions should be evaluated by a licensed health professional or in an emergency setting or urgent care prior to returning to work or sports. Be nice to that brain of yours. You only get one. Continue your journey to living a smarter, healthier life. Visit Beaumont.org podcast to access information and resources related to today's podcast.